I'm Derek Thompson, the host of the podcast, Plain English. We tackle technology, politics, culture, history, everything that's happening in the world and why it matters. New episodes of Plain English drop every Tuesday and Friday on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's New York, New York, presented by FanDuel. The second half of the NBA season is here, and you can bet on the action with an assist from FanDuel, America's number one sports book. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Parlay Hub. Filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays. And same-game parlays, all on one page. Plus, Start betting on the Explore page and the Pulse and Bet Live. Same game parlays for every NBA game. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit theringer.com slash RG to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus and present. In select states, gambling problem, call 100 Gambler or visit theringer.com slash RG. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive that sets the pace and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that throws you one moment and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability, no system no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Alrighty, let's roll, baby. Welcome in Thursday edition of New York, New York with yours truly, J.J. Johnson-Stremski. Right here on the Ringer Podcast Network. And I'm not going to lie, folks. I'm not going to lie. I'm a beaten man in the later portion of February. I think I'm a beaten man for a couple of different reasons. Number one, we are fostering two puppies for the next two to three weeks. So I am not going to be getting a lot of sleep. They're going to be peeing all over my apartment. Thank God we picked up the rugs. So I got that going on. I got my alma mater, Syracuse. They stink, they're finished, they're done. They got no chance of making the NCAA tournament. And, oh, I have the Knicks to look forward to. Oh, oh what a joy. The, the Knicks, they're returning. They're playing on national television every night. Oh, what the freaking do? I got Knicks games to look forward to. I apologize to the rest of America. See, this audience doesn't give a rat's ass because we have to watch the stupid games anyway. But, like, I'm looking at the national TV schedule, and it's like the Knicks play Friday, then they play on Sunday, then they play next week in Philly. Go get it. Great job by the schedule makers putting the Knicks in national TV spots every single day. That, that's going to be an absolute joy. What, am I supposed to get fired up that Kemba Walker's done for the year? What an absolute flop that ended up being. My God, that was worse than I even could have imagined. I actually thought Kemba would play well here. I thought maybe he'd be invigorated. That can't move. That's totally shot. It's good that the Knicks now have at least said, you know what? Maybe this will allow somebody like McBride to get some more minutes. And that's got to be, hands down, the thing to watch between now and the end of this year. Can I see younger players on the court? The Knicks are not going anywhere. I don't want to hear about the dopey playing tournament, please. 
It's not going to tickle my fancy with the schedule, number one, that they have coming up. And number two, they're not going to do anything of substance. Please, play younger players. I beg you, Tom Thibodeau, please, let the younger guys on this team get as much burn as humanly possible. That's something I absolutely need to see. So the Knicks are not exactly thrilling me in returning. I don't think any Knicks fan on planet Earth is thrilled about the fact that they're back on Friday night. It was actually enjoyable not having to watch them the last few days. And and then you have this dopey lockout in baseball. Now, the last thing I'm going to do is bore you with conversation of the minutia of the lockout. Like, that that is like the most boring conversation on planet Earth. Like, I think about my old profession and what I used to do for five hours, five nights a week. You want to talk about something that is like, would want to make me take my head and bang it against the wall doing five hours of lockout talk and why Major League Baseball, the owners and the Players Association don't have a deal. Like, that is something like, oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. And if that is the sort of riveting entertainment that you search for, God bless you. God bless you. Because there's nothing that would make me turn a podcast, radio, whatever show off than talking about that. Like, immediately, that is like, all right, I'm going to music. I, I, I can't take this anymore. But here's what I know. Opening day is not starting. That, that, that's all you need to know about all the little conversation. Forget about the details. Forget about the minutia. Will John Jastrzemski be at the bodega in early April after maybe a little pregame green room from the parking lot? Well, I'd be nursing a Modelo tall boy in my hands 20 minutes before first pitch, Yankees-Red Sox with Jordan Montgomery on the mound. The answer to that question is no, I wouldn't. In fact, I want the guys to make a little documentation of this. I will say the baseball season will start after my birthday on May the 15th. I had that as the over-under. I am going over. There will be baseball. I am confident there will be baseball. I do not think we will have baseball until after May. Which, listen, NBA playoffs, NHL playoffs, tournament, Masters, we'll be fine. Draft, free agency, like, there's going to be a ton of shit going on. But I love the idea of having my baseball team to watch every day. There's some, you don't have that in the other sports. Like, even the NBA. The NBA, your team plays, what, three days a week? Syracuse, I have two days a week, give or take. Baseball, and this is my favorite part about it, from April to September, you turn the page, the game is on. You ride the highs, you ride the lows, you fall in love with players. Like, it's just, there's something special about that. Maybe that makes me a fossil as a 33-year-old dude that grew up with that, like, as a part of my fabric. Like, I love it. You can mock me. I know the new age TikTokers are probably like, this guy is so out of his league. Well, screw you guys. That's what I would say. Maybe embrace a little culture. Just a smidge. But I love that about the sport. And that will bother me if I don't have that come April. But get ready. We're not going to have baseball starting on time. All right. Something that should, I don't want to say put you in a better mood because it's probably not going to put some of you in a better mood. But the conclusion of our top 10 New York sports losses since 2010, my peak into adulthood, 2010 and beyond, we will have the grand finale of that. We're going to have Ian O'Connor, who has a great book on Mike Krzyzewski. And 
He's a great New York historian. So he's going to shed some light on my list and his new book, which I'm sure is going to make a ton of money. And a little programming. In case you've missed our little tweak here over the next few weeks. Sunday, Thursday, we're right here on the New York, New York feed. Tuesday and Friday, we got gambling shows on the Ringer gambling feed. So if you're not on the Ringer gambling feed, you want college basketball picks, you want NBA stuff, Tuesday and Friday, I'm rocking and rolling over there. That's our schedule. That's what we got cooking. Let's unveil this list. And we're going to do trivia tonight. Trivia will be on Thursday for the foreseeable future. All right. Now that we got all that minutia of programming and scheduling nonsense out there, because listen, I could do it on Twitter, but sometimes you got to hear it. Sometimes you got to hear my beautiful voice. That's the way it goes. I know some people can't stand my beautiful voice. I think it's fabulous, by the way. I do. Take the uh, the lack of an accent. The people who don't like the New York accent, they could go that far, as far as I'm concerned. Like, I, I hate when I hear that. Oh, the, the accent. Fuck you guys. Okay? Fuck off. All right. The list is coming up next. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser, but I am a joggers guy. I just, once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I wanna wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. We know the list has gotten a lot of attention. There have been some complaints. There have been some critiques. There's been some praise. There's been a smorgasbord of reaction. But now the final five is about to be unveiled. And a couple of the games that were maybe called about on Sunday might creep their way onto this list, and it's possible a couple of them didn't make the cut. We got five to go. Let's start with number five. Number five. So I told you guys a Ranger game was going to be on the list, and from Twitter and from voicemails, it seemed like a lot of you guys wanted it to be the Stanley Cup final against the Los Angeles Kings. I decided to go in a different direction. And it might be biased. It might be because I was there. I went with Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Finals against the Tampa Bay Lightning. Why? Because I thought it was the Rangers' time. They'd gotten to a cup final. They'd dealt with the adversity of losing to a better team. Those finals games, they stunk. Overtime games, getting walked off on. Terrible. The LA Kings were the better team. I thought the Rangers were much better than the Tampa Bay Lightning. That was my feeling going into that particular series. They had a great win to get it back to Madison Square Garden and to go and lay an egg and get shut out two to nothing in a winner-take-all game. It felt like the moment right then and there, the book had closed on Henrik Lundqvist, the Rangers, and winning a Stanley Cup. They never got back to that point ever again. So I kind of look at it as one of those more iconic type losses, not in a good way, 
that ended the chapter on a really good run in the franchise's history with a whole lot of close but no cigars. I don't think this is going to be the most popular answer amongst Ranger fans, but after they lost to the Kings, I said they'll be back. They were. The following year, winner take all. The year they're supposed to win it all, they get shut out in their home building do or die game seven. The game against the Lightning is taking the cake over the games against the LA Kings. 2015 Rangers losing to Tampa. That's fifth on our list. Let's go to number four. Number four. Now, this is the only regular season game that cracked this list. And I think it would even be higher up on our total if it wasn't for what happened the following year to the New York Giants. But I want to take you through 2010. The 2007 Super Bowl was starting to become more of a distant memory. The Giants lost to the Panthers in 08. 09, they fell apart, collapsed down a stretch, and you could feel it coming. This was a huge game against the Eagles. The winner of this game was going to win the division. The loser was going to have a really hard time making the playoffs. And everything's going right for the Giants. The Giants were a big in this game. Eli's throwing it all over the Philadelphia Eagles. They're in complete control until Michael Vick and the Eagle offense get hot. They overcome a massive, massive deficit. And then the icing on the cake, the cherry on top, is Deshaun Jackson, who is a thorn in the side of the New York Giants for years. Late in the game, as everything is going against him, every Giant fan watching, I was at the dugout on Staten Island. Said it. Giant fans at MetLife Stadium probably said it. Don't kick this damn guy the ball. But what did the Giants do? They kick him the ball. Matt Dodds kicks him the football. And the end result was Deshaun Jackson returning it for a touchdown, haunting the Giants, haunting their fans. And basically from that moment, you knew the Giants weren't winning the division. And probably weren't making the playoffs. That's as bad a loss in the regular season as you could ever have. So, that's why I cracked the list. Number four, the miracle at the Meadowlands part two, Deshaun Jackson. Number three. Now, if this list was being done dealing just with my overall mental well-being, this would be number one on the list if it were my list, but I'm trying to be a man of the people. I'm trying to understand full well the rooting allegiances and everything that comes with being a New York sports fan. Like, for me, this is number one, but it's going to be number three on the list, and that is game six of the 2019 American League Championship Series. Yankee fans know exactly what I'm going to reference. Fucking Jose Altuve. Simple as that. The Yankees... Down 3-2 to two after an exhilarating Game 5. They're down in Game 6. The Astros are putting on a defensive clinic. There's no way the Yankees are going to tie the game until they tie the game. P.J. LeMayu, who had every big hit for the Yankees, goes Apo Taco. The Yankee bench is going nuts. You're dreaming. You're saying they're going to get this to a Game 7. Bring on Garrett Cole. Bring on the Astros. 2019 Yankees was such a fun watch. Romeo was so damn clutch. You couldn't even enjoy that moment for five minutes until Chapman hangs the slider. You knew it as soon as it was hit. 
Westbrook and Harden are behind, I think, home plate going nuts. I didn't sleep. Like, I always judge these losses by the amount of sleep that I lose. 2017, a lot of you guys wanted those losses on the list. I didn't lose a lot of sleep. The Yankees had a great regular season. It was unexpected. I thought they'd be back. They never got that close again. But that loss, 2019, I had to do radio and television. I was on like an hour and a half sleep. It was not pretty. So I'm putting it at number three. The walk-off. The season ender. Altuve. Killing the Yankees. All right, number two. Number two. So there's a lot of debate amongst Met fans for the two games in the 2015 World Series. And a lot of Met fans are going to argue that the quick pitch and the familiar moment should be higher on this list. The reason I am going to go with the Matt Harvey no-way game as number two, the way it all went down. Now, we know there were some extracurriculars with Matt Harvey. That has been well documented over the last few weeks. 2015, though, it's this renaissance. He is back. He is the dark knight. And in a game where his team is facing elimination, he is the ultimate bulldog for eight innings. He could not have pitched a better game. He talks the manager, Terry Collins, into coming back and pitching the ninth inning. The crowd is chanting, Harvey, Harvey. They're going nuts. And you're dreaming as a Met fan. R.H. delivers the Grom back in Kansas City for game six. Anything's possible. And then you got to watch that ninth inning. Terry Collins sticking with Matt Harvey too long. Familia yucking it up. And then, of course, the... David Wright lollipop into the Lucas Duda airmail, allowing Eric Hosmer to score the tying run in one of the worst, just nauseating type of ways to see a tying run score within the ninth inning of a game. That is exhibit A. Because you can see that coming from a mile a minute. David Wright with no arm, lollipopping a ball at first base, and then Duda basically giving you a bad throw to home plate. And from that moment on, the Mets were dead next to innings. They were absolutely dead, but they kind of tormented you for a little bit longer. And the Kansas City Royals win the World Series at City Field, and you go from the euphoria of Harvey, no way, dark night, to that. That's as bad as it gets. But it's not number one. The no way game is number two. What would be number one on my list? Number one. Now, I am putting this game on the list because of what it meant for the franchises after the fact. The day the game was played, which I think has to be a factor. That is Christmas Eve, Jet Giant 2011. The Jets in 09 and 2010, they were the toast to the town. Back-to-back AFC title games. Ryan, Mark Sanchez, the defense, the winner of the Patriots, can't wait. The Giants' 2007 Super Bowl was becoming at least a little bit of an afterthought to the back pages and to the buzz of the city. Then you have the Jets talking all sorts of smack. They're covering up Super Bowl trophies. Rex Ryan acting like Rex Ryan. And it bothered the Giant fan. And the Jets went in there and they pounded their chests. They got out to an early lead, and they never recovered from the 99-yard touchdown from Victor Cruz 
They decided to throw the ball 40-something times in a game. They abandoned their running game. Adam Sean proclaimed on his post game, it was a great line, shoddy, ruined Christmas. He kind of did. And that game set off the spiral that the Jets are still dealing with 10 years after the fact. That loss is so much worse than the Buffalo game. The Buffalo game, that was a one-year wonder team. That is a team that would have made absolutely no noise. Maybe at max, they win one playoff game. Totally different feel. Now, week 16 in a regular season is not the AFC title game. But to me, it represents the end of the Jets so much more than that title game. Because the Jets were still live then. The Jets were still in control of playoff destiny. And they were holding on to what they had the last two years. That went down the drain. The franchise has never recovered. Number one, ruining Christmases throughout the Tri-State area, including, I think, Tommy Keenan's, Mike Fliegelman's, and Sean Fennessy's, and Stephon Anderson. Can't forget about him. Victor Cruz in 2011. There's all this. I feel good about this because I did as good a job as I could do in taking my own investment in these particular games out of the equation. Because, like, for me, listen, this, this is a list that's going to have five New York Yankee games on it. Uh, you know? Would have had five, it, it, because I don't root for the Jets or the Giants. The Knicks have not given us that many bad losses. I mean, let's be honest. Outside of the Hibbert game, and no, I'm not putting these games against, like, the Nets and, and, and the Thunder. whoop they do The team stinks this year. Like, when the team stinks, regular season losses are not keeping me up at night. I'm sorry. They, they're just not. It's a different, it's a different level of pain. You know what I mean? It's just a totally different level of pain. So, tried to be as fair and balanced as we could with this. So, Victor Cruz, number one on the list. For me, though, listen, if it were, if it were my number one most painful loss since 2010, there you go. Altuve game. I'm still recovering from the uh, sleep deprivation. Still recovering. All right. Ian O'Connor is going to shed some light on this and, his book on Coach K is fabulous. You got to check it out. You got to read it. Ian O'Connor, New York Post. He's up next. This episode is brought to you by NetSuite by Oracle. As your business grows, you might start seeing some lag. There's too much work for your team, too many different processes, and it takes forever to close the books. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. It's a cloud financial system that can help streamline accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25, that's how many years NetSuite has been helping businesses do more with less. And one, because your one-of-a-kind business deserves a customized solution for your KPIs. It's like when you come here for this podcast or when you check out your favorite website to gather all the info you need to make better decisions for your fantasy leagues. Well, NetSuite does that for your business and then some. It's one efficient system, one source of truth with everything you need to grow. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash ringer. That is netsuite.com slash ringer. All right, let's welcome back a guy who's done such a brilliant job of profiling all of these unbelievable figures in sports. He's been doing so for a long time. He has the Belichick book. There's a book on Derek Jeter. Well, now... There's a book on Mike Krzyzewski, the rise and reign of Mike Krzyzewski, the author, our pal, the great Ian O'Connor. What's up, Ian? How you doing, man? Hey, John. How are you? Good to see you. It's good to have you back aboard. Um, all things considered, you've been on like this media book tour for the last couple of weeks, making all the stops. 
so far so good, I got to say, right? Like, you got to be very happy with the buzz and the sort of uh, reception that your latest work has kind of received here. I am, John. It started last week, early last week, with the excerpts that came out on the New York Post website on SI.com, ESPN, Yahoo. So we got a lot of uh, different forms for material in the book. The Tommy Amaker, John Shire story, which hadn't been reported before that Duke actually offered the job first to Tommy Amaker. And as far as replacing Coach K next season goes, and the Bob Knight, Krzyzewski stuff, the end of that relationship was new and how it happened and where it happened. So, and, and the LeBron tension at the Olympics. So we got a, a good amount of pickup on that and it got the book off to a, to a good start. All right. Take me through the thought process of profiling whoever you decide to profile and then coming down to the nitty gritty of, oh, I'm going to do this profile in this book and this feature on Mike Krzyzewski. Did you kind of know, Ian, retirement was right around the corner and you wanted to almost sink it with the end of this iconic run? Or did the idea come even before the idea of Mike deciding enough was enough? I think I knew, obviously, just based on his age, that he was nearing the end game. I got a little lucky that he uh, pre-announced his retirement and because he, he had just stopped in the offseason and ended it. That, that would have hurt the book without question to have him active and going into what effectively was a victory tour, I think was something that I wasn't opposed to. And, and so I knew he was nearing the end. And I, I've always been fascinated by greatness and the pursuit of it. That's why I profiled in my previous books, Jeter, Belichick, Arnie and Jack. And, and so, and, and I was at his arguably his greatest moment, the Leitner shot against Kentucky in 92 in the Philadelphia Spectrum. I was courtside for that. And it's probably the, the most significant shot in the history of college basketball. And from that night on, I know that was 30 years ago, John, but I've always been fascinated by him. He's a distant, mysterious figure, not as much as Belichick. I would say Belichick more mysterious for sure. But if the Patriots are the Kremlin, I think Duke is a little more user-friendly than that, probably more like the CIA. And I wanted to get behind the walls of that program. And, and find out what made it tick all these years. He's been there 42 years, of course. And also try to find out what makes him tick. And so that's what I set out to do. And hopefully I pulled it off. All right. I would agree with you. The Leitner shot is probably the most iconic moment of his tenure at Duke. It's obviously one of the greatest games, if not the greatest game in college basketball history. But as you're going through this profile, and in many ways, you know, I think about my adult life and my adult life. Duke has been this dominant force in college basketball. I think if you're like under the age of 40, basically, that's what you've seen. They have been the gold standard in so many different ways. But as you're going through this profile, was there a singular moment where Mike Krzyzewski kind of believed from people that you talked to that Duke had arrived? Was it the idea of having success in the ACC or was it? the first national championship. When was the moment people around Duke and people around Coach K were like, okay, Duke, they're now a power? I don't think Coach K would ever believe he had arrived until he won the whole thing. There were moments before that, the 86 national title game, which he he actually hurt the cause in the final minutes against Louisville when he took the air out of the ball with a lead. It was a big mistake. Billy Packer said it on the air. This is a mistake. And they ended up losing that game. They should have won that national championship. And then losing in the 88-89 Final Fours, getting destroyed by the great Vegas team in 90 in the final. 
They were the Buffalo Bills before the Buffalo Bills. He was Marv Levy before Marv Levy. He couldn't win the big one. And, and the defining moment maybe for him and the transition from the guy who couldn't win the big one to the guy who won a lot of big ones was the Final Four game in 91 against Vegas in the rematch in Indianapolis. I was actually on the UNLV plane flying into that Final Four, sitting next to Tarkanian for part of that flight. And I remember Tark saying that we have nobody to cover Leitner. Leitner really concerned him. And I just thought he was, they were heavily favored. He was trying to get me to write that they were really concerned and was, was actually exaggerating for effect. But as it turned out, he was right. They could not cover Christian Leitner. And of course, that Duke team also had Grant Hill, which the previous team that got destroyed by Vegas didn't have. And, and the big moment there, of course, they're down five late, two, two minutes, maybe 13, 14 seconds left. And Bobby Hurley hit that three-pointer which even though Leitner's shot is more iconic, the Hurley shot is the biggest shot in the history of the Duke program. He misses that. They probably lose that game. Instead, they win it. They beat Kansas. And finally, they break through in, in beating Roy Williams in Kansas for the national title. So Vegas gave them, by beating Vegas, that was a huge upset, one of the biggest in the history of the sport. That's the moment where Coach K gets past a huge hurdle and then finally, two nights later, wins the national championship. That's when he arrived. Duke's program. You go back to the early days. You even go back to Leitner and Grant Hill. It's this idea of having three and four-year guys who are a part of the program. And you love to hate them in many ways. You love to hate Christian Leitner. Or you love to hate J.J. Redick. Like, these are guys, Battier, uh, Dunleavy. You, like, identified them as a part of the Duke brand. When did the shift happen, you think, Ian, from going from the three, four-year guy to so many of these one-and-dones that Duke has had, really, for the later portion of Kay's tenure and his last national championship? I think, J.J., it started to change after he got back from the Beijing Olympics in terms of the one-and-done player because he had that experience with LeBron James and Kobe Bryant and he decided, you know what? I just want to be around greatness all the time. I want to coach the best players in the world at that particular level. And so he knew to do that, he had to finally embrace one and done and become effectively John Calipari. And that's what he did. He went after John Wall, lost him to Kentucky. They got in late on John Wall. They get Kyrie Irving. Austin Rivers back then was a slam dunk one and done. I know if you look at his career in retrospect, maybe he shouldn't have been, but he was. Jabari Parker, and then, of course, the guys on the 2015 National Championship team, Winslow and Justice and Justice Winslow and Okafor. And so what's interesting is he went to national title in 2010 with a traditional Duke team, guys who had already been in place when he went off to Beijing. Upperclassman John Shire was a star on that team. And then in 2015, five years later, he wins with an entirely different cast of players, one-and-done guys. So. It, it, he was unbelievable in adapting and adjusting to the times. And frankly, I, that's why I put him slightly ahead of John Wooden on the all-time list of great coaches. Some older fans have contacted me on that one and said, you're crazy, 10 national titles to five. I just think it was so much more difficult in Mike's time to do that, to win. So I, I would actually put him slightly ahead of John Wooden. Fascinating. Okay, the 2008 Olympics. It's crazy to think about it now, but at the time, the United States and their basketball was getting kicked around. They got embarrassed in 2004. They felt like they needed somebody to come in and take the program, if you will, to the next level. 
Colangelo's involved. Krzyzewski gets involved. Was that something that, like, he holds as dear as any of those national championships he has at Duke? Or did he kind of view it as, like, a much different challenge? No, he holds that extremely dear. That was so important to him. Now, he had opportunities to go to the NBA, John, over the years. In 90, the Boston Celtics wanted him. In 94, at Portland. and How close two- was the Laker thing with Coach Lakers Kat? in 2004. It was pretty close. Now, they actually offered – Mitch Kupchak was the GM, and the North Carolina connection kicked in. They talked to Roy Williams first and, and then, but Krzyzewski ended up with the offer and Kobe wanted him to take it. And he was tempted by that one. Lakers, Kobe, that's a tough one to turn down, but you can, you can control winning much more in college basketball than in the NBA. And I think he realized that every year you can recruit the best players in the country in the NBA. When you win a championship, you get penalized and you draft last and you have to deal with the cap and free agency and, it's just easier in college basketball to keep it going. So he got the best of both worlds by staying at Duke and winning and controlling his winning percentage to some degree and then coaching the best NBA players in the world at the Olympics. But that experience, he had to change to adapt to coaching Kobe Bryant and LeBron James. And I had a scene in the book where right before they went to Beijing, they're in Shanghai playing the final prelim game against Australia. And Kobe started taking some Lakers shots, just non-team USA shots. And some players were grumbling. And LeBron said something to Coach K during that game. He walked by him and said, John, yo, Coach, you better fix that mother bleep. And everyone knew who he was talking about. And here's Coach K. He just lost the world championship game in uh, in the semifinal in 2006 in an embarrassing way to Greece, which uh, Greece ran one play, a high pick and roll, and the U.S. couldn't defend it. And here he is now, still a college coach, and he's got to tell Kobe Bryant to stop taking bad shots. He wanted no part of it. But LeBron was holding him accountable. So the next day, he pulled Kobe aside, pulled him into a side room, and opened up his laptop, and he showed him, I don't know, a half dozen, eight shots, whatever that he took that he felt were not team-centric shots, and told him, we can't have this. You can take those shots with the Lakers. You can't take them when LeBron James and Melo and Chris Paul and Jay Kidd are your teammates representing your country. And Kobe looked at him and said, okay, coach, I got it. It won't happen again. And that was the end of the meeting. And uh, Coach K went and told LeBron, hey, I just want you to know I took care of it. So it was a scene of LeBron holding Coach K accountable, Coach K holding Kobe accountable. And the funny thing is, at the end of that Spain game for the gold medal, Kobe had to take some pretty acrobatic shots to bail out the Americans. So it kind of worked out for everyone involved. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for the LeBron James Coach K conversation, uh, <laughs> including the idea of not having Kobe Bryant take Kobe Bryant as type of shots. Uh, I'll tell you some other conversations I'd love to be privy to in the Bob Knight, Mike Shashevsky interaction over the years. Because listen, Bob Knight's this iconic figure in college basketball. We all know that. Coach K looked up to him in many ways. Coach K surpassed him in so many different ways. And now that relationship, clearly not what it was when there was the uh, the protege mentor type deal. When did it go wrong with these two guys? Well, it started in 92 at the Final Four. Coach K beat him. Knight had been upset even before that game. He handed an envelope to a Duke assistant named Tom Rogers. Colonel Tom Rogers used to be at West Point with Knight. And then in the note, there was an article that uh, he had clipped out, circled some quotes. Krzyzewski had been quoted recently just talking about creating distance between himself and Knight, who was his mentor and coach at Army. And, and Knight was uh, rather upset about that. 
you know, and, and I think clearly coach K wanted to establish himself as his own man, his own coach. And so Knight handed a nasty letter to the Duke assistant who gave it to Mike after the game. And Krzyzewski was blown away by that. And the fact that Knight gave him a Belichickian drive by handshake after that game and ignored him when they passed in the hallway to and from their press conferences. So Mike is floored. He is devastated. And in his hotel room later that night, he's crying, basically. And Mike Bray, who was then a Duke assistant, now the head coach at Notre Dame, he walked in and found out what was going on. And he snapped Kay out of it. He told him, bleat night, he wants you to feel this way because he wants you to lose Monday night against Michigan and the Fab Five. So that did snap Coach Kay out of it. And, of course, they won that second straight national title. But they had moments over the years in Madison Square Garden in 96. They played and Knight hid behind a curtain so he didn't have to shake Mike's hand before the game. And, and over time, you had these slights more real than imagined. Finally, in 2015 at Pinehurst at a West Point reunion, Coach K approached Knight's table and Knight completely blew him off. So Krzyzewski just stormed out of the room and some of his old teammates followed him. And he just said, that is the last bleeping time I ever tried with that guy. And my reporting shows they have never spoken again. That was the end of their relationship. Wow. Wow. Would you say there are similarities, Belichick, Parcells, to what you have with Knight and Krzyzewski? But it seems like, now listen, I, I don't think Belichick and Parcells are the best of buddies, but like there is, you know, a mutual respect. They did that documentary a few years ago where they could be in the same room with one another. That's not the case clearly with Coach K and with Bobby Knight, but do you, you did the Belichick book. You now have done a Krzyzewski book. Do you see that at all, Ian, or no? I do. That's a great comparison. I, I think the knight Shashevsky non-relationship now is an extreme version of Parcells-Belichick. But they went a period of time without talking to each other. No question about it. Belichick and Parcells after the Jets fiasco when Belichick walked out after 24 hours. And so they repaired it to some degree. First of all, they were never best friends. I think the relationship was portrayed that they were closer than they really were. So. Uh, but they did repair it to some degree. And listen, when Joe Judge got the Giants job, Belichick called Parcells and can you do me a favor and just talk to Joe about how to handle the early days of this? And he did. And Parcells called Judge and tried to help him out a little bit. Didn't work out in the end, of course. But I, I would say that Knight Krzyzewski is similar to Parcells uh, Belichick, but much worse. And now that relationship is over and Parcells and Belichick are still civil to each other, at least. Ian? As far as the plan after Coach K, you think Coach K thousand percent said, hey, we're hiring who I want or is a little bit more complicated than that? You reported it. I read the, the excerpt, which I found fascinating. Tommy Amaker apparently was the number one choice. So what was that process for Duke, at least, in going through, OK, we've had this icon, this legend. Now we need to replace him. Is it our call? Is it Mike's call? Is it somewhere in between? Well, the university thought it was their call, officials with uh, Duke, and they did offer it to Tommy Amaker. And I reported that. And certainly Duke's never denied that because it's true. And Coach K did not want that to happen. He's, he's, he was very close to Tommy Amaker, but he'd been away from Duke for nearly a quarter century. Krzyzewski believed that he could exert more influence over the program in retirement by having his younger protege in there in John Shire. And Shire was a good candidate. 
And obviously, right out of the gate, he signed the number one recruiting class in the country for next year. So it's pretty hard to argue with that. But Amaker had the offer, and Mike got on a call with him, a Zoom call, and explained to him, listen, if, if you come aboard and leave Harvard and you're an assistant coach for a year, now I've got to demote Nolan Smith back to director of basketball operations, and there's a weird dynamic on staff with you and Shire, and I don't think that's what's best for Duke basketball. Now, Amaker could have said, hey, I don't care what you think. I'll see you in a couple of weeks. I'm taking this job. But he didn't do that. He has a very good life at Harvard. His wife has a very good job. And he decided it's going to be too uncomfortable for me to succeed there at Duke. Mike's keeping his office on the sixth floor. He's going to be around. It would have been awkward. And he decided to take a pass. And that's how John Shire got the job. What was your favorite part about doing this book and this specific profile? I think it's just the challenge to me. Now, the Belichick challenge was greater because he, he tried didn't want to, to give me anything. Well, he didn't talk to me. Certainly, I knew that going in, but he he tried to block everybody from talking to me. So not, not surprising, might I add. Not surprising. No, not everybody listened to him necessarily, but uh, he did reach out to a lot of people. Shashevsky did not. He said, listen, now he didn't tell me this directly, but I got this from somebody close to him that he was planning on writing his own book in retirement. And, and, if, and why should I give you my stories for free when I have no editorial control over the book? And I've said this before, but I don't have a, I don't have a good answer to that question. He's right. And I don't necessarily blame him, but I was going to proceed with or without him. And he did say, I will not block anybody. And as far as I know, he lived up to that promise. And it's just fascinating to get to know a human being, even if that human being isn't cooperating with you directly, not granting interviews. And as I mentioned, from a distance, starting really 30 years ago and witnessing that Leitner shot courtside and Sean Woods of Kentucky made the shot before to give uh, Kentucky the lead with 2.1 seconds left, fell at my feet. And I remember looking over and Mike had a towel in his hand and he spiked it like he was spiking a football in the end zone. And I know it was 30 years later before I finally <laughs> did a book on him. But since that night, I think I was really fascinated by him and the program. And that led to the book. The Coach K book, I'm about halfway through. Absolute must read. Got to check it out. Ian, final one, because we have you here, and it's the uh, topic of discussion on a late February night with no baseball and the Knicks going nowhere. And me just want to have a little bit of fun. You're a great historian in New York sports. Obviously, 04, 88 with the Mets, Charles Smith. Those are like iconic losses. But I <laughs> wanted to, to deal with my adult life, which is like post-Syracuse. So 2010 and on. Okay. I said, what's the worst New York sports loss for any of these particular pro teams? Now, I don't root for this team. This does not involve a team that I, you know, die with, that I bleed with, because otherwise for me it would be Altuve and the loss in 2019. I had the Victor Cruz game for the Jets number one on my list. I tried to be <laughs> fair. I tried to be objective. Could have gone with a Met game. Could have gone with either one of five of the World Series. Could have gone Altuve. Yankees have had a bunch, might I add. But I went number one, Jets losing to the Giants, kind of spiraling their franchise out of control. Would you give that your endorsement? I would. I mean, certainly if you're a Giant fan, uh, you wouldn't be saying that. And Giants no, absolutely not. not. That might be your number one win. I, that's right. I was in the building for that. And man, if you think about where those programs were entering that game, Rex Ryan was talking all kinds of trash leading into that game about Coughlin, about the Giants, how we've taken over this town. And obviously that 99-yard play changed everything. 
The Giants never lost again. They were 7-7 seven and seven going into that game. People forget. And they ran the table from that point. And Rex lost control of his program and never got it back. And technically, he was right. The Jets had become the team in the market. But he talked too much that week. And Coughlin, one thing I remember, he got wiped out on the sideline late in that game. He tore up his hamstring. He later told me how much pain he felt when he got wiped out. And he, his family wanted him to go to the hospital that night. He really tore like the muscle off the, off the bone in his leg. It was bad. And he wanted to make Rex Ryan shake his hand after that game. And he peg-legged it out there. I don't know if you recall that, John, but he hobbled out there and he made Rex shake his hand. And uh, he was hurting for a while after that wipeout on the sideline. And, of course, I believe that was a Jet personal foul, typical of the Rex Ryan team. So I, I, I think that was devastating to a Jet fan. And it was the last great moment the Giants had. Altuve really hurts. And anything with the Astros tormenting the Yankees because they were cheating. And that makes it worse. And, and certainly Yankees have had a lot of these bad losses. You think about it, Ian. You're not used to saying that from a Yankee perspective, but like 2010 on, I mean, the Jeter game where he fractures his ankle, any right. of the games against the Red Sox, the Astros, they've had, they've had some brutal, brutal playoff losses. And it felt like in the 90s, and as a columnist, I was there for that entire run, that they were always doing that to other teams. They always won those games. Always. They always won those games. And it just turned on them. And, and so it went the other way. But you know what's interesting? This is recency bias kicking in. We talk, well, let's talk about the Knicks for a second. I felt like last week, that was one of the worst regular season losses to, to the Nets, to anyone I've seen in a long time. And, and I was working late on my uh, book stuff, interviews, lining up excerpts, and I saw the Knicks were up on the Nets by 28 points. And, I, and the Nets didn't have Kyrie, didn't have Durant. I don't think, was Harden playing? I don't No, think he was gone. Was they made the trade already. At that it, point. it was like the G League version of the Nets. Right. And and the Knicks are up 28 at home. Now, I understand they've been blowing leads left and right, but this is the Nets as a shell of themselves. I turned it off because I had work to do. And when I later found out that they lost and I know they've played some really bad basketball for 20 years. That's the I mean, I almost fell out of my chair. I could. How do you lose at home up 28 to that team? Yeah, it's a bad and look. But they've been doing it all year. That was a bad regular See, season loss. It's a hideous regular season loss. Like, I'm on a plane watching it. You know, I'm sipping a cocktail coming back from L.A. I'm like, all right, I think they got this one in the bag. And you could almost <laughs> see it coming from a mile away. When the lead goes from, like, 28 to right. 9, I'm like, they're going to lose this game. Like, I feel like that's what the Knicks have done to you this year. I guess the good news is, Ian, it's a regular season where they're going nowhere fast. So as bad a loss as that may be, if the Knicks win that game, they're still probably going to end up having a crummy year. So I'll take that as a little bit of solace, you know? Good point. A, a horrific Yankee loss in the regular season. And I've been going to Yankee games as a columnist for, for a long time. The the Grand Slam, it, it, there were two rain delays that oh, night. Yeah, I was at that game against the Angels. Chapman yeah. gives up the oh, Grand yeah. Slam. And as that you had to sit around the, for like seven hours at oh, that game. Oh, it was the worst. I didn't if get I out of that building. If I wasn't in the suites, I would have bounced. But I stayed. Big mistake. I don't think. I don't think I crossed the George Washington Bridge until three in the morning that night. And I remember when that ball was in the air, I couldn't process it. I, it, it was a horrific feeling, particularly I had the column already written and, and I, I could not believe it. A whole lot of delete, right, Ian? A whole lot of delete is that ball is sailing right. at that center field. Had, oh, so much for that. 
you know what happened? I had a, I had a, a one-on-one with Cashman that day and he, he had given me some good stuff and I wanted to keep most of it. But now I had to throw that out or, or a lot of it. And I, I, I remember driving home that night. I didn't get home till close to 3.30 in the morning thinking to myself, that might be the worst regular season loss I've ever seen since the Yankee dynasty started in, in 96. I was trying to think of another brutal regular season loss. Obviously, postseason losses are more difficult to deal with if you're a Yankee fan. But I just, it was just unbelievable. The Yankees, the Yankees had a bunch better. this regular season, too. That one was number one on my list. But they had a bunch to the Red Sox. They had the Field of Dreams game. They had a, a lot of bad losses this year. They, <laughs> they did. did. They really did. And uh, so we, we've seen a lot of bad baseball, football, and basketball in the last decade. It's got to turn at some point. I was asked about that recently, I think, by Colin Cowherd. Is there a narrative thread to weave sort of between all? And listen, Derek Jeter and Eli Manning got old. That, that's a big part of it. And the Jets constantly searching for a quarterback, still haven't found that guy that, that gives them a chance to win a championship. And they haven't won one since I always say man stepped on the moon, which is hard to believe. They haven't even played in a Super Bowl since man stepped on the moon. And, and in a league like the NFL that's built on parity, that's almost impossible to, to do, to pull off. But the Jets have found a way to do it. So I, I think that we, we need things to turn. Maybe Showalter and, and Scherzer with the Mets separates them from the pack a little bit and becomes a, a really good New York baseball story. We'll see how that plays out. It'd be nice to have a New York team spend it like a New York team. The Mets are on par with that. Maybe the Yankees will... Uh... Decide to get on board whenever this lockout ends. Ian O'Connor, he's got an unbelievable book, The Rise and the Reign of Mike Krzyzewski. Ian, best of luck. Stay in touch. And hopefully the next time I have you on, there's a, a positive New York story we could actually discuss. That'd be nice. <laughs> I'm up for that, John. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. If you're busy like me and you're trying to catch your kids' games, it's important to have somewhere where you can go to find a good hotel. We're all over the place. Sometimes... You know, we're in Florida, we'll be in New York. We want to take the wife on a quick vacation and get away. Whether you're looking for a relaxing getaway or heading out of town to see the playoffs, Hotels.com app has a perfect hotel for every trip. Compare up to five hotels side by side so you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings without having to switch back and forth between options. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. All right, that was fun. Ian O'Connor, I mean, you want to talk about a guy who's like a great New York historian, just a great historian of sports, period. I mean, think about the profiles he's done. Belichick. Jeter. Krzyzewski. Not bad. Not bad. All right, voicemail time. You want to get in touch with New York, New York. Very simple way to do so. 917-382-1151. That's where we make some magic. All right, boys, let's hear him. JJ, this is Mike from Wisconsin. I grew up on Long Island. Mets, Giants, Islanders fan. Um, the uh, worst game since the 2010s, the Mets game one in 2015, which you mentioned yesterday. Um, I also remember about that in addition to the um, Gordon, Alex Gordon, there was the Cespedes, I think, drop kicked the fly ball or some shit like that. Um, and then, of course, Game 5 was just brutal, and I still hear Joe Suck calling that uh, unbelievable base running by Hosmer. Yeah. Uh, and then the wildcard game, 2016, that pretty much sucked, too. Um, 
Giants 2010 to Sean Jackson. I, I just, I still have nightmares about that, even though we won the Super Bowl again the year after and the 2016 wildcard game against Green Bay, um, after the boat photo. Uh, and the Islanders game seven last year against Tampa. Um, and I also give honorable mention to not a game, but last year's trade deadline news that DeGrom was done for the season because that was, uh, some pretty fucked up news. <laughs> um, all right. Thanks, man. Appreciate all you guys do. See ya. Lots to chew on there. I'm glad that you're giving the Ranger Lightning game the respect it deserves because it was the end of an era. Um, the 2016 wildcard game for the Mets, bad loss. Granderson makes the best, the, that unbelievable catch. It's this this great duel between Syndergaard and Bumgarner. That Mets team was not coming anywhere close to beating the Chicago Cubs. They weren't. And I had two Mets games on this list. There was no way 2016 in the wildcard game was going to make it. Like, I had to give the Islanders and the Nets a little love on the list. Had to do it. Had to be fair. There were plenty of Yankee games I would have liked on this list that I couldn't even. The fact that the wild card game last year didn't even sniff or game four against the Red Sox didn't even sniff. Having to sit there in agony and watch a replay of Eduardo Nunez who could never make a play, make this like bang, bang play with Gloyber Torres with the game on the line. I mean, yeah. So we left a couple of games off the list. That's the way it goes. A lot to choose from, folks. A lot to choose from. Who's next? Hey, JJ, <clears throat> Justin in Miami. You're doing a great job with, the, with this list post-2010. couple games, though, and a comment on overall. I think if you do this list from how we felt right in the moment after the loss as opposed to in retrospect, you get a very different list. And I'll give you a great example. One of the games that perhaps I felt the worst about right after it happened was game two the 2017 ALDS when the Yankees blew that huge lead to the Indians. I mean, I don't know if I've ever seen such a brutal loss over the last 10 years. And it felt like at the time that they had just flushed the series away. They were going to get swept. Um, obviously, they came back and won it. So in retrospect, it's not going to make this list. But if you did a list of just feelings after the game, that game might be number one for me as a Yankee fan. Um, agree with the Deshaun game. And then with respect to hockey, I think – I'd have to go with the loss in 2015, Game 7 to the Lightning. It wasn't that that game itself was some sort of back-and-forth loss, like, for example, the Game 5 to the Kings was the prior year. It's that you kind of knew that was our last shot at it, and to lose at home in a Game 7 when you hadn't lost at a Game 7 at home at all in the Lundquist era, that was just brutal to take. Um, all right, I'm very interested in hearing the rest of your list. Talk to you later, buddy. Excellent, excellent, excellent phone call from Justin. And he's right about that perspective type deal because that 2017 game two loss to the Indians, that was a horrific, horrific, horrific Yankee loss. But it's forgotten and it didn't crack this list because the Yankees won the next three games and won a game five in Cleveland. That loss was horrible. Remember Girardi didn't challenge the play with Lonnie Chisenhall? They had a huge lead. He takes CeCe out. Lindor hits this bomb against Chad Green. He's going nuts. I want I want to punch Francisco Lindor in the face when he took the bat. He's like putting up the hands. I'm like, dude, 
You're making me sick right now. And then the Yankees had tens of chances in extra innings. They didn't score. And Cleveland ended up walking it off. Yeah, it was a, that was a horrible, horrible loss. Doesn't make the cut, though, because the Yankees won the series. But we're on the same wavelength. And I think the last two calls, give you guys credit, the Kings games got a lot of attention. The Lightning loss, because of what it represented, it made the cut for me over those two. That's me. Who's next? What's going on, John? This is uh, Stuart from Brooklyn. Um, my top losses since 2010, uh, one of them is uh, in 2013, the uh, New York Giants. They lost 24-21 to against the Cowboys. You know, Romo throwing those two touchdowns that led to the Bailey field goal, and the uh, Giants were up 21-6. to I felt that game took the air all out of them to get back into the playoffs. Uh, they started out 0-6, and, and they won 7 out of the last 10. And with the uh, the hockey, the Rangers in 2017 getting eliminated by the Senators in the second round of Game 6 because they were more talented with their forwards and they had the goaltending, and it just didn't work for them. And then in 2013 against the Bruins, the Daniel Pele, the Game 3, they outshot the Bruins in the third period, but they just couldn't score. And with the baseball, the, the Mets getting shellacked by the Nationals in 2018, 25-4. to That's got to be the worst high-scoring loss in history. And, and, and the Connor Gillespie home run should be up there. In, in 2016, the Mets never recovered from that. You know, Stuart, appreciate it. When my team gets shellacked, it doesn't bother me that much. Like, you mentioned a 25-4 to regular season game. That's, that's one of 162. Turn the page. It looks bad. It's humiliating in the moment, but, like, it's one loss. Gillespie didn't make the cut over some of those other Met games. And you mentioned two Ranger playoff losses, 13 and then 17 or, what, 18 with the Senators. The time, I think, and the book in many ways closed for the Rangers, not in that Ottawa series, it closed in that Tampa Eastern Conference final. I can't put Ottawa or Boston ahead of what happened with the Kings in the Stanley Cup final or a game seven against Tampa. I, for one, cannot do that. I cannot do that. All right, last but not least, what do we got, boys? Hey, Jay, Stephen, Brooklyn. I just can't believe the anti-Yankee bias the last few days of how many people have said Jorge Posada, Andy Pettit, Bernie Williams don't deserve their numbers retired. I mean, I agree, Paul O'Neill's a threat. We're talking about retiring a number and what a player meant to a fan base. Mind you, the fans basically already retired number 21 after they booed the hell out of LaTroy Hawkins. So let's not act like Paul O'Neill wasn't a great Yankee. And not only O'Neill, but I want to talk more about Posada, Bernie, Pettit. These are guys who were huge parts of four World Series teams in five years, six World Series appearances in eight years. I mean, we'll be hard-pressed to find a team to win back-to-back again. Let me tell me, these guys, dynasty Yankee players, don't deserve to have a number retired. I understand it might be a little much, and... People want to complain it's the Yankees. They should have a higher standard. But these are great, great Yankees. I mean, Dory Horry Pisan is one of the better catchers to ever do it. 275 home runs. 15 years behind the plate, basically. Bernie Williams, 308 straight years. Gold Glove in the center field. A rock of those teams. Andy Pettit won 256 thinking games. And the three are legit borderline Hall of Famers. I mean, we have teams that have retired. Michael Young's number, Paul Canerco, Luis Gonzalez, Mark Burley. But because we're the Yankees, we can't retire. Those guys' numbers get the hell out of here. Load of garbage. And you know what? O'Neill, perfectly fine. Great Yankee, great broadcaster. Just mind you, it's weeks after the Mets announced they're retiring. Keith Hernandez's number. 
So the anti-Yankee bias is real. And those Yankee dynasty teams, the anti-the bias against them is just, it's ridiculous. So I just wanted to get that off my chest about the Yankees because those guys are great Yankees, great ball players, and are far, far deserving of their numbers desired by the Yankees. Thanks, man. My main man, Steve, is fired up about this, which I love. Look, the standard the Yankees currently have in place, Paul Neal should have his number retired. He should. You look at his numbers. You look at the four titles in five years. You think about the fact that they only gave it to one other Yankee and Hawkins had it for a week and was getting booed out of the building. Like, it bothered the Yankee fan in no end. They never gave it to anybody else. If you're going to retire Posada's number, yeah, I think O'Neill's number should be retired. But as Jack and I discussed the other day, I think it's the iconic players of the franchise that should have the number retired. Like, let's put it this way. The Red Sox don't retire enough numbers, in my opinion. The Yankees retire too many. There's probably like a happy medium. The Yankees kind of went above and beyond in that, I think. They've already gone down that road. Like, like Reggie having his number retired after five years, to me, doesn't make sense. Managers having a number retired, to me, doesn't really make sense. But they went down that road. So if you go down a certain path and that's the way you do it, sure, O'Neill should have his number retired. Why the hell not? The Yankee standard should be different. Though. That's my personal take. And it's not just Paul O'Neill. It's for about half the numbers that are out there. A little food for thought. All right, it's not a Tuesday, but we're tweaking. Trivia Thursday. That's all right. I enjoy trivia too much. I get to make a fool of myself too much. How can I pass this up? Let's hear Larry. I'll chew on it, and then we'll take a break. CJ, Larry in Florida. Here's the trivia. There's been 14 guys that have saved at least 50 games in a season, and only three of these guys have done it twice. Second one is, is in the last 10 years in college basketball, there's only one guy that's got 25 or more points in 14 consecutive games. Who is that player? I'm out. Two very interesting questions. One is pretty topical. The other one? Got to put the thinking cap on. We'll see where I stand coming up next. All right, Larry, 14 guys to save 50 games. Only three have done it twice. Okay. I'm going to start with choice number one. Trevor Huffman. Wow. And I said that with a lot of gusto and a lot of confidence. No for Trevor Huffman. Okay. All right. I, I got to throw this out there. He's the greatest to ever do it. Mariano Rivera. Okay. That should have been my first guess if we're really being serious. I mean, how did I put Trevor Hoffman ahead of Mariano? I don't know. I Sometimes the brain works in, in mysterious ways. But anyway, one down, two to go. Save 50 games, and only three have done it twice. So you got to think about all-time save leaders, and you got to think who's up on this list. All right. Number two, Lee Smith. Okay. Don't like this. Don't like this. Number two. Francisco Rodriguez. Oh, man. Larry. Not good, buddy. 
Not good. Hmm. I'm going to throw out a few more guesses and then I'm going to have to phone friends here because right now my performance is uh, it's lacking. Billy Wagner. Jeez. Jeez Louise. I can't get any of these right. Fellas, I'm taking one more guess and, and then we're, we're going to ask for a little assistance. We're going to ask for a little assistance. Dennis Eckersley. My God. All right. So there are two more guys. Would you say they are recent closers or would you say that they are far more of yesteryear? Pre-1996, let's say. All right, Jay. Um, So one has played within the last five years, I want to say. And the other has been within the last 10 to 15. So, semi-recent. Okay. Semi-recent. 50 saves. Only three have done it twice. There's no way Zach Britton is on this list, right? I don't think so. Okay. He did save 50, I think, at one point. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, I don't even think he's done it because he always misses time. Chapman's not on this list, is he? This is this is embarrassing. All right, I'm taking one more guess and I'm waving the white flag. Kenley Jansen. <laughs> Guys, who are the other two names? Holy smokes. Eric Gagne, Jim Johnson. Jim Johnson. Oh, I see. Gagne makes sense. He was a dominant reliever at one point. I would have never in a million. You guys could have given me 50 more guesses, and I would not have thrown Jim Johnson's name out there. Wow. 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 Okay. Well done, Larry. Well done. All right. Next question. College basketball. Last 10 years, a player to score 25 or more points in 10 consecutive games. All right. I'm going to my obvious guess right out of the bat, right off the gate, right out of the bat. Is it Zion Williamson? <laughs> it's not Zion. I felt good about that, too. This is not my night in trivia. This is not my night in trivia. 25 or more points in 10 consecutive games. See, it's got to be a guy who got a ton of points and got a ton of looks for a given team. It's not Curry, because Curry did not play in college basketball in the last 10 years, so he's out. Twenty-five or more points in 10 consecutive games. So if we're talking, this is 2022, we're going 2012 on. You like think, of, oh, who are the great college players of that time? I don't think this is the right answer. I'm throwing them out anyway. Is it Carl Anthony Towns? <laughs> nope. All right, guys. To save me the embarrassment of just a, a shameful trivia performance. Would you guys say this is a guard or a forward who accomplished this feat? This was a guard. That makes sense. Shooting age. Would you say he is amounted to being a very good NBA player? That is also correct. I, I think I know the answer. I think I know the answer because I'm thinking of a guy who would get buckets and would have to take on a brunt of the scoring 
for his given program? Is it John Morant? Wow. And I was confident in that answer. Like, that was about to be the mic drop right there. Because I would have guessed John's, not John Morant. Okay. Okay. Guard. He's had a good NBA career. 2012 and beyond. Hmm. And obviously, a tremendous college player, you would say, Steph, right? Yeah, he, he was the stud in college, for sure. Hmm. I'm annoyed right now. I'm annoyed. I'm annoyed, I'm annoyed, I'm annoyed, because I, I should know this. I should know this. My last hint. Was he playing this past weekend in the NBA All-Star game? He was an All-Star as well, yes. He was an All-Star. That should help. But the, uh, my furry friends have found their way into my office, so maybe they will give me a little inspiration. Playing in the All-Star game. See, I'm getting a dog getting scolded at right now. This is what happens. We don't have dogs in the office as we are fostering two little guys, and Stapler right now is causing a problem. Stapler, you can't disrupt a live podcast, my friend. You're not allowed to do so. Stapler getting a little love. It's a good-looking dog. It's a good-looking dog. Okay. Play in the All-Star game. Oh, my God. I'm, like, going through the rosters. I'm, like, thinking about dudes. It's not Morant. It's not Curry. It's not Darius Garland, is it? All right, I'm taking one more guess, and then we are conceding and admitting humiliating defeat because that's what it would be, a humiliating defeat to not get this question right. Guy loves college basketball, can't get this question right. Embarrassing. Absolutely embarrassing. I was going to say Tatum, but uh, he's a forward. He's not a guard. Guys, I don't know. Who is it? I'm going to get really annoyed. Just tell me. This guy should have been at your top of your brain. Trey. Young. Oh, of course. Of course. Yeah. Sheree but, Young. Uh, yeah, and he had a terrific college career. I, I did bet against him, though, uh, in the Oklahoma-Rhode Island game in the NCAA tournament a couple of years ago. That's that's unacceptable. But I, I, you know what, Larry? Job well done. I, I did a deplorable job with trivia today. Deplorable, deplorable job. We'll get back in the lab. We'll get back to it next week. All right, before we say goodbye, this is from Radio Row. He's one of my favorite Dolphins. He's a really charismatic guy doing a lot of great things in the community. That's some interesting things to say. Mac Hollins, wide receiver, might be a free agent. Who knows? Maybe wearing a different uniform next year. He joins us next. All right, we're going to welcome in a guy who had a terrific year for the Miami Dolphins. And for what it's worth, he should be getting the ball more in the red zone. Mac Hollins, what's happening, Matt? I'm good. I appreciate y'all having me. All right, so up and down year for your Dolphins. You guys start off the year one and seven, then go on this run and get into playoff contention. What happened, obviously losing to a Hurts, don't get me wrong, but what happened at the beginning of the year and compare to me the difference between the one and seven Dolphins and the team that went on that crazy run? As strange as this will sound, I don't think there was much of a difference. Interesting, okay. We're the same. You don't just magically become better week nine in a season. Um, I think the things that we were doing were right, but we weren't just doing them to the highest level that we could have. Like, are we studying film as hard as we can? You know, like you can turn a movie on, and I can ask you questions about the movie, and you'll know nothing. Who is the lead actor? You'll be like, ah, uh, some dude would. Like, were you really watching the movie, or were you? Are we really watching film, or are you just 
practicing play and look, coach, I watched two hours of film. Were we doing, were we practicing with a purpose or were you just out there, let's get this two hours of practice in and then we're good. So like getting really detailed, I think we really started as that stretch of not so good stuff happened. I think we narrowed it down like, hey, we need to be more focused, more focused, more focused. And then bang, bang, bang. We do a New York podcast. They're not going to like to hear this. You had some big days against the New York football teams. Uh, what play did you enjoy more? The bomb down the field against the Jets. Big touchdown to it, throws it to you deep. Or that sick grab, and I was right in the corner of the end zone in Miami, that you made against the Giants. Um, I, I've always been, since college, a big fan of the, the deep ball. Okay. Um, so that was fun. That one was fun. To show that I could stretch the field and, and get some, some big plays. So your quarterback seems to always be, for better or worse, this polarizing figure. Now, I love him. I'm team two all the way. But there are some that say, oh, you know, there's question unnamed sources within the Dolphin locker room. Some guys don't believe in him. You're in a huddle with him all the time. You think he has what it takes to be a top quarterback in this league? Yeah, I know he does. I, I've been in the league long enough where I, you can get anonymous source from about anything. Uh, it, that's just how the league works. You know, you're not, you got 60 guys in the locker room. I'm sure one of them is not happy or would say something, this and that. But that don't mean it's the truth. Like, it's funny because when I was my rookie year in Philly, when we win the Super Bowl, everything's perfect. Like, everybody's so happy, yada, yada, yada. Same team basically the next year, and we're losing games, and all of a sudden this guy's not good. This guy. And that's just how this business works. But I got full faith into it. What's the biggest skill set you think he brings to the table as a quarterback? I think is mine. I think what I what I've learned is the arms the arm can bring you so far. The mind is everything in that position. Uh, you got to be able to control a, a huddle. You got to be able to control a playbook. You got to be able to know what to do. When the, when the game's online, you can't you can't crush like crush under pressure. And he he has those things. He has those I guess intangibles is the word they'll they'll use on ESPN. You played with Jalen Waddle, rookie, putting up those numbers. Did you know when you go into training camp, you see this guy working out? What did you see him in college? You're like, this dude, he's got it. I mean, it was if you can get the ball in his hands, you'll. He makes no, things yeah, happen. Yeah, nobody's gonna be he able to flies, stop him. He flies, man. Yeah. All you he gotta flies. do is get the ball in his hands, and he'll he'll make something happen out of it. So, everybody had their idea of if we can make, if he touches the ball, he'll he'll be successful. So I'm a New York guy. Yeah. Brian Flores gets let go at the end of the year. Yeah. I saw the notification. I was shocked. What was your reaction when you find out you have a new head coach? Yeah, I think it's it's it was shocking, but not as long as it was when I was younger. You know, the shocks don't hit me as, as sad as that sounds. In the NFL, you're just used to that stuff happening. Like, somebody will get fired after a winning season. Somebody will get hired after they just left somewhere where they were losing. It's like, how does that make sense? But as long as I can make it to a training camp, I'm always happy. I can understand right. that, bro. Hey, let I me mean, get to my training camp. You know it, man. The NFL, they say it's not for long, Exactly, right? exactly. Have you heard from Mike McDaniel? What have you heard about Mike McDaniel, your new head coach? Um, what I've heard is people are like, he's different. And that's what people all say about me. So I'm like, this is my I was going to say, I, Emmanuel Sanders came here and said, he remind me of Mike McDaniel yeah, a little bit. I don't know if that's like, a good thing or a bad it, thing, Mac. Listen, that's a, that's a great – when somebody says you're different, I'm like, oh, that's got to be my type of guy. Because that's in the locker room, that's all Mac. Mac's a weird, different dude. Like, I don't know who's just different. I don't know how to describe him. So I'm sure me and Mike will get along well. You want to be back with the Miami Dolphins? I'd love to. I'd love to. You know, this is a place I've been successful and I've built relationships. So I'd love to. Okay. So – Talk me through your Super Bowl experience. Yeah. You're with the Philadelphia Eagles. Yeah. Your rookie year. Yeah. Philly special. That run. Carson Wentz goes down with an injury. You guys, I think, were underdogs in every single one of those playoff games. Was that like a rallying cry? Like nobody, like going into playoffs, nobody believes in us. Nobody thinks we have a chance. And 
Was there a moment for you as a rookie, you're like winning a whole thing? Before the game, obviously? The only time I knew for sure we were going to win a game was versus the Vikings. Um, and I think the videos got famous of like the whole uh, crowd in pregame singing the Meek Mill song. And at that and the moment, dog mask and yeah, all that like, stuff. I, yeah, I, that was the only game where I knew like they have no chance. Like we're gonna beat these guys by fifty, and then we end up beating them probably like twenty or thirty. Uh, so you just play, the energy was just you play in the yeah. Super Bowl. Yep. Talk me through what that week was like for you, like the build up, the anticipation. Like was that one of the craziest weeks in your life? Um. Well, Alshon Jeffrey is like my that's my dog, and I'm a firm believer in what he said. And like uh, a lot of that stuff that goes up to the Super Bowl, a waste of time. Like we could have stayed in Philly and. Like doing not like I'm I'm not playing it so I can do this type of stuff. But like yeah. if I'm playing a game, why am I in Radio Row an hour a day? Like I'm trying to play I'm trying to play football. I'm here to play football. I'll talk to you after the game. Um, so I'm a firm believer in that. If you're playing, you should. If the coach wants you out there a week early, great. But you shouldn't have to do all this media stuff. But I get it. So, Were you guys working stuff. on that Philly special all year, or was oh, that a point of view? Yeah, we had that. Oh, so you had that from the beginning eight, of the year. I think, like, okay, we had that. You're waiting for the special you moment. Just, yeah, you gotta wait. Sometimes it's just not the right time in the game. Is the right down and distance? Is it? There's a lot that goes into that. Most of the time, trick plays, like, you, you've had them for a while. It's rare that a team just, week before the game, like, hey, we're going to put this in and we're going to run it. Okay, so you win a Super Bowl, that's great. But from an individual standpoint, would you say your individual highlight in the NFL is that Fitzpatrick play against the Raiders? I mean, how that's, insane that's was most, that? That's the most famous one, I think, for sure, because he— uh, How the hell did he throw that ball? He called it out two series before, or a series before, like, hey, Mac, I'm going to look right and I'm just going to throw it left. Little did I know, he was looking behind him. <laughs> and threw it left somehow. And then you see that? Uh, did you see as you're like catching a ball? His helmet's. I didn't. Even th- I didn't even know what happened. I couldn't even see. I just like I was like, oh, catch! And I look back. I was like, damn, holding. We're about to lose. And then yeah, because first, you guys had no timeouts. Yeah, no timeouts. I'm like, oh, we just lost. Like a holding, and they're gonna burn the burn the clock. But like personal foul. I'm like, let's go. I see it up on the jumbo trying. And, and Sanders last year, I was like, get him on the field. Like, he's automatic. Go. He ain't yeah, gonna I'm miss. Like, let's go. Yeah, I knew he was gonna. Make. I walked out the field while the ball's in the air, like the game over. Um, but Fitz is. He's a heck of a dude, so it was fun to play with. All right, talk me through what you're doing with the Special Olympics. Really cool stuff. Yeah, so Special Olympics is something that I gravitated towards since I was a kid. Um, and my relationship with them has grown and grown to where I'm a champion ambassador now. But the big thing that I've been working with with them is Unified Champion Schools, which is putting those with and without intellectual disabilities together in the same schools and letting them be together, work together, play together, play sports together. Uh, and the growth that both sides are seeing is incredible. Um, when I was growing up, it was always separate. Those with intellectual disabilities go over here in the school. Those without are over here. Like you have no interaction really other than if you pass each other in the hallway. And that was the, the thought. That was what it, people thought it was, was best. Uh, and now what they're seeing is it's the complete opposite. Right? The more you're together, the more you can grow from each other. I learned so much from Special Olympics athletes. Like when I'm with them, it's always a smile. They're always gonna shoot me straight. Right? If I'm being like, if I'm in a bad mood, they'll be able to tell, and they'll be like, "Why are you acting like that?" Um, so it's it's really humbling to be, be be around Special Olympics athletes, not only for how they act, but how they perform and, and work at their sport. I think a lot of people think they just show up and go get a gold medal. It's easy. Um, they put in a lot of they they there. I know Special Olympics athletes that outwork some of my teammates. That's incredible. Like, they work. That is absolutely incredible. And not only that. You got this dolphin bike challenge I see on Instagram. How the legs feeling? I mean, listen, you're an NFL player, so I expect you to be in uh, badass shape. But I see you're waking up at like five in the morning. Yeah, like I'm Max up, getting I'm up after early. it, I'm man. I'm up early, so I wake up. I do like ten miles. Um, I'll come back to the house, work out in the garage, drop my son off at the bus stop, take the bike to the facility, another ten miles, 
do some stuff there, ride back 10 miles. So like 30 miles a day, and then weekends I'll double it, so I'll do 60. Because I got to do 100. I got sucked so into when, 100. When is, the, when is the big challenge? February 26th. You, you think you're ready? You're ready. I mean, I got no you're choice. Ready. It's like me the running a half got, marathon in April. You just got to do you it. You just got to do it. Just like the legs just got to keep moving. That's all that, that's all that matters. If they keep moving, I'll make it. You're doing great right. stuff in the community, man. Keep up it. the good work. I hope you're back with the Dolphins next year. And when do we decide? I mean, the Braves look awesome. The pro. Pro's got the, swag, the has his, Yeah, the pro has his I mean, days. that's like your signature. I know. It's all, it's all, it's all by a, a it's lot mood, of things. It's right? mood, Yeah, it's mood. You know, I, I got to go into certain games. I feel like I'm more aggressive when I have braids. Oh, then keep the braids, then. Right. But then if I, if I have the pro, I like, know. I have more flow. Like, I can flow through the through the game better. I can kind of sense things better. It's it's a lot of uh, psychological right, listen, stuff. And Mac, we trust. Mac Collins, <laughs> Miami Dolphins. Hope he's back next year. Thanks, Appreciate buddy. it. All right, that was fun. Matt Collins, one of my favorite Dolphins, by the way. He's got some flair. The fro is awesome. Really good dude. Really enjoyed that sit-down. All right, Jeff Money. I need some winners, bro. I had a brutal Wednesday in college basketball. I'm still salty about Xavier. So what do you got for me for Friday? What up, JJ? Jeff Money here with a handicapper picks. This is going to be for Friday the 25th. I got two college basketball games. College basketball game on one, my money play. I'm going to go ride with Princeton, minus the seven and a half over Hartford. And I'm going to take Troy plus the one-and-a-half over Texas State. Again, two plays, money play in college basketball. I'm going to go with Princeton, minus the seven-and-a-half. I'm going to take Troy, plus the one-and-a-half. And as always, everyone can follow my daily plays on Twitter, at Jeff Money. Okay, JJ, I'm out of here. Let's go. I love Jeff Money digging deep. I thought I was digging deep the other day with the Mountain West in San Diego State. He's now taking it to another level. And reminder, we got a Friday gambling pod. We'll have house with the NBA stuff. I'll have college picks up on Ringer Gambling. Might have a Saturday morning green room right before the game. So whole lots of gambling stuff, whole lots of college hoop stuff on the Ringer Gambling feed. We're back Sunday. Ton of fun all week. Good work, fellas. JJ out. Be good, everybody. There's a lot that could impress you about the all-new Honda Prologue EV. True, it's got class-leading passenger space and clean, thoughtful design and intuitive technology. But what really sets the Prologue apart from the competition is that it's more than an EV. It's a Honda. Honda, the power of dreams. Visit honda.com slash prologue to learn more.